The scripture from this uh, sermon this morning is taken from Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Karen. Good morning. My name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to kick off this morning with a uh, terrifying story about a, a guy in a cave who, um, <laughs> who squeezes so tight and makes everyone in the audience feel so uncomfortable that they can't think about anything to the rest of the sermon. 
If you're laughing, you were here last week, and Steve, Steve told this amazing illustration, and I was so uncomfortable during those first three to five minutes, and then at the end, um, but I don't have that great of an illustration to kick it off, so I thought I would just kind of borrow yours. So if you haven't listened to that sermon, you've got to listen to it. It's amazing. You can find it uh, on our app. But today, we have the privilege of having our first through fifth graders with us also. This is our fifth Sunday, uh, which means that some of you parents showed up thinking you were dumping your kids, and they're with you now, which is awesome because, okay, listen, one of the reasons we do this is that we want an opportunity for your kids to be with you as they watch you worship and to connect with you as they're in a kind of grown-up environment and see what it's like for you to be a follower of Jesus. Also, it's an opportunity for me to give them an opportunity to ask you a question on the way home. So kids, the question you're going to ask your parents, this is going to be awesome. So if you need to write it down, write it down. Parents, you're welcome in advance. How come, this is your question, how come if Jesus gets to curse stuff, I'm not allowed to curse stuff, okay? That is the question you get to ask your parents on the drive home. Parents, I'm not going to help you. Y'all just deal with that, okay? Um, today's ser- you're welcome. You're welcome. I heard thank yous. You're, you're very welcome. Um, we are in a series in the book of Mark, uh, which just went from a, a reddish fuchsia to a green just because, you know, it's summer. And, uh, but what hasn't changed is that we've been walking with Jesus as he has been redefining the good life, taking our concept of him especially and our concept of what it means to follow him and just been flipping it on its head time and time again in a variety of different ways. And we get to see that again today. So if you've shown up today and you're not really sure exactly like what you think about Jesus or, or how he plays out in your context or in your life or you're still kind of trying to discover that, just know that Jesus has a way of whether you've been a Christian a long time and you've read your Bible or whether or not this is your first time experiencing him, of of flipping the things you would think he's like, the things you think he might be about on their heads. And boy, he does that today in kind of three scenes, three back-to-back moments um, on the final week of his life. And so we come to this passage in in Mark chapter uh, chapter 11, and and we're going to see three things today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the entrance of an unexpected king, the entrance of an unexpected king, the purifying of an unholy temple, the purifying of an unholy temple, and the cursing of an unfruitful tree. The entrance of an unexpected king, the purifying of an unholy temple, and the cursing of an unfruitful tree. Well, first, the entrance of an unexpected king. What Jesus does as he walks into Jerusalem shows us a multifaceted dynamic about Jesus. He's not the Jesus you might think. He's not the way you might expect. You see, he's a, he's a sovereign king. And I'll show you why he's a king. But he's a sovereign king in that he's the one who looks at his disciples and say, listen, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you what you're about to go do and play out the entire scenario. Some of us have a hard time with the reality that God might be sovereign over all things. But, but Jesus demonstrates this, that he's... He's sovereign. He sends two guys over and says, you're going to walk in, you're going to see a cult, you're going to untie it, people are going to say this, and you're going to tell them this, and they're going to let you go, and it happens just like that. He's a sovereign king. He demonstrates his foreknowledge and sovereignty over all the events that follow all the way, of course, on the road to Jerusalem and far beyond that. He knows exactly where the cult is. He knows exactly how it will play out, and it does so. So he's the sovereign king, but he's also this, this humble king. One of the things that's 
most surprising about a king who would be entering a, a city, especially a city like Jerusalem, especially as you look at kind of the culmination of Jesus' ministry, is that he goes and chooses to be on, on a cult, not, not a war horse, not, not something powerful that would be head and shoulders above everybody else. No, no, he comes and meanders in on a, well, as one, one um, writer said, on something a hobbit would ride. Jesus comes in as a humble king. He's sovereign, but he's also meek. He's not what you would think, but he's also a deliberate king. I think one of the fascinating things about the triumphal entry is that Jesus sets the whole thing up. He, he sets, right, the whole thing. You saw in the text. He, he basically says, go get a colt. I'm going to ride in on it. I'm going to do something first, which is going to be, I'm going to fulfill prophecy. And this is the prophecy that he's going to fulfill. It comes out of Zechariah chapter 9, where the prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus sets the whole thing up. The entire triumphal entry, he, he lets the praises happen. Think about that. In this triumphal entry, in this moment where people are starting to shout and praise and say, Hosanna, he, he lets it happen. He doesn't go, no, 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 no this, this is not what should be happening right now. See, this removes that whole concept, that whole idea of like the Jesus Christ superstar, you know, who just kind of accidentally got himself all swallowed up into this big concept of a Messiah and everything. But that's not really what he meant. He's just a good teacher who wanted good things for people. And that's just common practice now, right? Jesus was a good teacher, but whoa, whoa, whoa. He's not claiming anything crazy like being, I don't know, God himself. But he, but he is. He's setting up the whole moment not, not just to fulfill a prophecy which speaks of the coming Messiah that everybody understood was the coming of the Messiah, but he also, he also finds himself receiving the praise. He lets it happen. He lets all this fanfare happen around him. It's as though he's saying, if you will see me, if you will really look, if you will ex accept me as I am, then you will receive me as your king, as your king coming to you, and I am righteous, and I come with salvation with me, and yet I am humble. He's a humble king, and he's deliberate, and so what we see is we see people responding to him. They're not responding to him in that moment necessarily. These are people who, who probably saw that, that uh, Lazarus got raised from the dead months ago, or, or they've been hearing about his miracles, and a whole throng of people are heading into Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands are heading into Jerusalem, and, and so what happens is his disciples, his close ones, throw their cloaks on the, on the back of the donkey, but then, then there's just a bunch of people that are just shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. We have to be careful in this moment. This is all, a lot of that's out of Psalm 118. You have to be careful in this moment not to ascribe something with our 21st century Christian eyes to something that may not and probably wasn't going on. When I was a little kid, I thought like, oh, all the Christians were excited to like help Jesus get into Jerusalem. But that's not what's going on here. These are people that are excited, and some of them are seeing him as some form of a liberator, and they're screaming, Hosanna, please save. Save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now. Please save. 
And maybe some of those are saying, I don't know, he seems special. Maybe he's got, maybe there is some kind of liberation coming. Maybe, maybe the Romans through him are going to be edged out. Maybe he's going to, maybe he's going to bring back some of the great kingdom of our father, David. But, but no concept of what that might really look like. And so they're just kind of broadly praising God and excited to be about, about and around this really important person. And we see his disciples kind of getting who he is, but candidly, kind of not simultaneously all the way up to his death. One of the other gospels says that it wasn't until after that the disciples were like, oh, I see what was going on there. So what we see is this Jesus who is coming into a city with this throng of people, people claiming things, and then suddenly it just stops. He goes from being a triumphal entry to, to an abandoned king. It says that he arrives inside the city and it just dissipates. He goes to the temple and appears just by himself with his disciples and super anticlimactic. Doesn't it seem like this is the moment we're finally at the spot where Jesus is going to be acclaimed as Messiah? Finally, he's going to take the rightful place and, and it just peters out. Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, wildly anticlimactic. And so Jesus walks in. He takes a look around the temple. It says, Mark says it was late. And so he and the 12, just the 12, head back to Bethany for the night. I think from this section, there's probably one key thing I think that I want to just pull out and point out. One of the commentators, uh, Edwards, says, Mark is, Mark is warning in this passage against enthusiasm Sorry, Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. So I think the question that is asked by this moment, this triumphal entry, this acclaim is, what kind of Jesus are you following? Who is the Jesus that you're following or or claiming to follow or wrestling to follow? Who who is he? What is is he really like? Is, Is he the real thing? Is he both humble and sovereign? Is he purposeful in how he activates all the means of redemption, both in his life but ultimately in yours? But maybe more practically, is are we willing to identify with Jesus? To be connected with Jesus all the way through, all the way through. Or when the hype, maybe when the emotions, maybe when the, maybe when the mountaintop, ex- mountaintop experience is gone, or, or maybe when the moment where you, you know you needed him really badly, and so you've been on your knees, and he's, he's given you what you were longing for, and you've experienced relief. Or maybe it's just when you find yourself with people who wouldn't be as cool with you being a follower of Jesus, or, or having that as the thing that's central to your soul. Will you go with Jesus all the way through? Are you going with Jesus all the way through? Or do you also dissipate into the crowd after great shouts of, he saves, please save? Does, does your Sunday morning disappear on, on Monday morning? Loved ones, the good life that, that Jesus is redefining for us is one wherein we, we don't abandon him, but that we keep following him as he really is, and that means sovereign and humble and deliberate, and that we do so with the ongoing cry of our hearts, the daily refrain of 
save me now. Oh, save me now. Have mercy on me today and then tomorrow and then tomorrow. So we see the entrance of an unexpected king. And then we see the purifying of an unholy temple. One of the things that was expected of Jesus, I'm sorry, was expected of the Messiah when he would come to Jerusalem, when the Messiah would rise up and free Israel, is that he would come into Jerusalem and he would come into the temple and then he would get rid of all of the Gentiles, the foreigners, and the aliens. That was one of the expectations of the Messiah. He was going to get those people out so that the purity of the Jews, Israel as God's people, would remain the real thing. And finally, it would be able to ascend to the greatness in which it was expected to according to the covenant. And that's not at all what Jesus does. Here's what I mean. You see in the, in the passage that you've got this cacophony of noise and things going on in the middle of the temple, right? Jesus comes and he says he flips the tables and... Why is he having to do that? Well, the reason he's having to do that is because the money changers, those who are selling animals, are in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles is, is huge. It's, a, it's the section, the largest section of the temple, and it's the place where everyone started just doing bartering. It's where, it's where the, the entire sacrificial system when it comes to, well, the money, that is, took place. And so the place, the only place where if you're a Gentile, which is almost all of us in this room, could have an opportunity to enter into the presence of the Lord was full of noise and bartering and screams. It says that, uh, Josephus said in in, in 66 AD that about, he's one of the first century historians, in 66 AD, which was the the year that the temple of Herod was completed, that 255,000 lambs were sacrificed during Passover. That, that's a lot of lambs, for those of you who are not familiar with lambs. Um, that means that 255,000 lambs are, are moving in and out. And where are they moving in and out of? Where are they being bought and sold? Where is there the bartering over, yeah, my currency change for the temple coin, which of course is wildly inflated so that the, the priests could put money in their pockets, is, is covered with thousands upon thousands of pigeons. And, and Jesus walks in and he says the very place in which you think I'm supposed to come as the Messiah and, and, and move the Gentiles out? I come to actually protect, to make a place not against, but a place for, for the Gentiles, for, as he says, all nations. He comes to protect. He doesn't just come to protect, though. He does come to purge false religion. And he wants to do so, and he does so as it relates to the chief priests and the scribes, what we probably call the Sanhedrin. He's saying you, you've turned this, this place, this, this environment that God has declared, this is where you can know that you can participate and be present with God Almighty. You've turned it into a den of robbers. You're, you're taking advantage of people. You're, you're saying when someone brings a lamb, you know what? That's a nice lamb, and it looks like it's pure, but it's not temple pure and clean. And so we'll trade you. You give us your lamb, and then we'll upsell you for just $19.99. We'll upsell you another lamb. Oh, I'm sorry, you're coming with the wrong currency. So now you need to go and get money changed so you can use temple coins because only temple coins can buy a lamb for sacrifice. Everybody knows that, of course. And so you have upcharge, you have usury, you have corruption. And Jesus says, you've missed the whole point of what this place is supposed to be about. This is my house, he says 
As he quotes the Lord saying, this is a house that's supposed to be about connecting people with the presence of the Lord. And you've made it a den of robbers. You've made it a loud, vacuous, empty place. He condemns them. What we see is that Jesus is willing to fight them for them. He's willing to take them on for their sake. That he's willing to mess up their systems of self-salvation. Think about that. You've got a money changer who's making money, pocketing money in the temple courts for the Passover. How is he there so that he can possibly be experiencing the grace of God through the sacrifice that will be made on his behalf? That a substitution will take place between him and the lamb that God has said that'll do it? No, he's, he's saving himself by putting money in his pocket. He's, he's created an entire other way of, of making life okay. He's in the temple, but he's lost the purpose of the temple. And so Jesus is purging false religion from the, the chief priests and the scribes, but that's exactly what he's wanting to do with us. Jesus will fight you for you. It's good news. He will fight you for you. He'll, he will mess up your, your systems of self-salvation so that he can purify and rescue your soul. In other words, Jesus saves us, saves us from what we need saving from, not from what we think we need saving from. Jesus saves us from not what we think we need saving from, but what we actually need saving from. And some of us here need saving and rescuing, rescuing from materialism and, and, and an obsession with stuff, j- just like the money changers and just like the priests. And others of us need to be rescued from a frantic life. We're so distracted. Our life is like the court of the Gentiles with 2,255,000 lambs going through. Jesus wants to rescue us. Some of us need to be rescued from cycles of addiction and shame. Others are just pretending to be religious, pretending to be spiritual. Others are trapped in, in bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, and he wants to rescue you from that. Some of us need to be saved from our pride and our superiority and our resentment of another religion, another, another party, of another gender maybe, of another group, of another race. Jesus wants to rescue us, not from what we think we need rescued from, but from what he knows we need rescue from. And what's fascinating to me is that the response of the scribes is tragic, right? What do they say in verse 18? They say, um, it says that they were afraid because of how the crowd was responding to Jesus' teaching. It actually says they were astonished. And so the, the Pharisees are like, no, the scribes are saying, no, 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 no. We're, we're afraid of him, and so we want to destroy him. And, and so this is, this is tragic response, right? There's nothing to cheer about here. But, but what's fascinating is this. It has integrity. I mean, you know, if you're going give, to give them something, it has integrity. They, they were able to look and listen to what Jesus was saying and doing by how he was behaving and what he was declaring and what he was teaching, and they got it. 
Like they knew what he was trying to call them to. They knew what it meant for them, what it would cost them, what they would have to give up if they were going to follow him. And so they want to kill him. It fits. It matches. And I want, what I wonder is, do we have that kind of integrity? Are we living with that kind of integrity? Pleasant or unpleasant? You see, it seems like Like we can be comfortable with a level of syncretism in our lives where, where I have a little bit of Jesus and, and a little bit of the rest of my life, a little bit of how I want my life to go and, and, and do what I want to do, and, then, and I kind of throw Jesus on the, on the side. And so I, I come on a Sunday morning, and, and I, maybe I, I hear something in a sermon, and, and Jesus starts speaking to me in the middle of a song or, or through a reading, and, and, and in a way he comes over and he starts just flipping a table over. And all the coins go flying, and it's like, whoa, okay, okay, okay. Jesus seems to be really serious about me becoming a different kind of person, about living a different kind of life. But then Sunday morning becomes Sunday afternoon and Monday morning, and we find ourselves having right-sided our table, and, and we're stacking our coins again because it's, it's got to work. Because Jesus can't actually be all of my life. And I just want to say... Jesus doesn't give us that option. He, he really doesn't. He doesn't give us the option of adding him as a garnish to the meal of our life. He, he doesn't. He will have no, nothing else but all of us, all of our worship, all of our allegiance, all of our heart, all of our affection. Loved ones, God, does, God won't share you it says he's a jealous God. He furiously loves us, and he is, he is more committed to our purity, to our holiness, to us becoming just like Jesus than he is to any of our comfort. Jesus, listen, Jesus is more committed to your freedom than you are to being free, which is, which is amazing, right? He, he's more committed to your freedom than you are. And he will actively move towards you and act upon you and wrestle with you to bring that about. That's furious love. So will you take the risk of letting him into the temple of your life? Will you, will you allow him to come in and to flip the tables? I had this moment, kids, where I was thinking about actually having a table up here with a bunch of coins on it and flipping it. But then it just seemed like it might be dramatic, although I actually kind of say, it is dramatic. I, I thought, you know, there's something about, like, you don't want to, like, put on airs, but, like, Jesus really flipped tables. That's uncomfortable for some people, that he's that, he's that furious about bringing the reality of life and the good life into into where people are not alive. He wants to do that in you, and so will you let him? Are, are you interested in him coming and potentially making a mess? Or, you know what, just, just a garnish, Lord. Just, you just stay over here. It's so pretty. It's like a flower in the cap, you know. It's just, 
thank you. I'm so glad. And when I need you, I'll come to you. But will you let them in? Well, Jesus illustrates just how serious he is about the purifying of his holy temple in Jerusalem as he is in bringing purity to us. And he does this through this surprising engagement with a fig tree. And this is one of those fascinating sections of, of the scriptures. It says in verse 12, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the next day, on verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter, who always says stuff, remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, at first glance, it's maybe a troubling picture for you about Jesus, especially if you love trees. Like, come on, Jesus, what did the tree do to you, right? I mean, there's a, there's a real sense of, like, what is happening here? Did Jesus get hangry and, like, go and, like, take it out on a tree? Is that what's happening here? Honestly, this passage has caused trouble for people. People have had a hard time with, this is the only, just as, as a side note, this is the only miracle that Jesus does that involves destruction. Everything else is healing, building up. It's the only one in all of the recorded scriptures about Jesus where he destroys something, where something gets undone. And there's commentators that are like, why couldn't he have just walked up and turned it into, like had, had a bunch of buds emerge and he could have eaten fig trees. That would have been the miracle. And it's like, because that's not what he was doing. Because you don't get to put Jesus in a box. He's not your personal Jesus. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he cursed that tree. And it withered to the roots. Now, what's easier to understand is if you understand something about fig trees. This might help you. I'm assuming you don't know anything about fig trees. Maybe you do. Um, fig trees are usually um, like they're cultivated. That's not the word. The fruit comes off of a, tree, a fig tree in August through, through October. So that's when they take it all. And then right after that, before the winter comes, there's these little tiny buds that kind of emerge on the end of the branches. And then winter comes and it just stays that way. Somewhere in about March to, to beginning of April, there's these tiny little, I think they're called knobs or knops. They're these basically tiny little nodules that emerge. They kind of grow and they start to they swell up. Um, now, that happens right around the, towards the beginning of April. At the same time as these little knops emerge, which, by the way, are awesome and can be eaten and travelers eat them, um, at the same time or right after that, leaves start to emerge on the tree. And so what we have to recognize here is, is if you're someone who sees a tree that has a fig tree and it has leaves on it, you would expect by going to it that you would be able to find branches full of these little, they're called pagim, P-A-G-G-I-M. There'd be pagim everywhere. And, and Jesus goes for that very reason to this tree. Now, see, doesn't it make more sense? Now, it, he wasn't expecting, Jesus doesn't go expecting to find full mature figs because, as Mark says, it's not the season for figs yet. But it is the season for these little pagims. And Jesus goes there, and he finds none. Zero. And Jesus curses the tree. 
This is why Jesus goes to the fig tree expecting to find figs and finding none. Though it was the season of the figs, though it was the season of the pagames, he expected to experience flourishing. But there was none. And now the whole, seas, the whole um, scene starts to yield the meaning. The tree has all the signs of fruit bearing, but it has no fruit. And the absence of these little pagim means that there will be no actual full fruit. There will be no harvest to be had of figs. This tree, though it looks like it's alive, is actually diseased or probably dying already. It doesn't look like it, though. It's got leaves. Which means that the tree does not have, though it appears to have life, it does not have life. It doesn't have fruit of life, and therefore it cannot manifest real life. And it withers overnight from Jesus' curse. Now, the, 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 first, the first application of this, of this particular curse, because really what Jesus is doing is he's, he's living out or acting out a parable right in front of his disciples. It's a living parable. The fig tree is the temple. The fig tree is the temple. And the fruitfulness of the temple has been thwarted. It's been, it's been misappropriated. And Jesus cast judgment on the temple, on the temple's appearance to, to be participating in helping people get connected to the presence of God, but it's not doing that, not anymore. God's redemptive activity is being thwarted. It's lost the purpose for which it was made. It says that it was withered away to its roots. In the, in the clearing of the temple, what, what Jesus is doing is something more than just coming in and saying, hey, because it's 35 acres, so let's just be really clear. Jesus did not clear 35 acres worth of animals. In the, it just didn't happen. And the next day, when they're standing next to the withered tree, you know what's going on in the court of the Gentiles? The same thing. He didn't undo the practices. He went in there, and in a very clear sense, he proclaimed judgment on an entire system. He said, this is the way in which people used to come to be able to know that they could be right with God and enter the presence of God, and no longer. It is no longer the temple because someone greater than the temple is here. There's a true and better temple and it's me. There's a dissolution of the temple system. Jesus was declaring that the approach to God through the temple, the access to the presence of God, has now been replaced by Jesus himself. That means that approaching the presence of God can be done for everyone. There is no more court of the Gentiles, no more court of women. There is no more court of the Israelites. There is no more court of the priests. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not the temple system anymore. I am the ultimate object of your faith. So the temple's fruitfulness, I think, is the immediate application, but it's definitely the application of the living parable he gives to them, but that idea of, of appearance versus reality, 
pretense versus the substance, I think is an implication that resonates all the way down to us, to you and to me. Where some of us have the appearance of faith. Maybe we're going through through religious motions instead of having the substance of it, the fruit of the gospel in us. Our heart isn't changed. We're, we're, just, we're just bending our behavior to be modified. We have a, an appearance gospel where, where we, where we want to look close to God but not be close to God. I find that one of the most obvious ways in which that manifests, the times I see it most clearly or experience it most clearly is when I pray out loud with people. I don't know if you pray with family members or with other people or in the church context, but I find that as the way that we pray, the things that we'll ask for and the things we won't ask for because we're either too good for them or we're too bad for them, that the familiarity or the formality of how we pray to God, the language that we use or the it tells something about the way in which we're connected to this. Is there, is there awe or is there humility? Is there, is there intimacy? There can be the appearance of righteousness and goodness and holiness and godliness, but, but not the actual knowledge and knowing and being. It's one of the things that as I'm praying, especially if I'm praying out loud or before the service with people, I'm like, do I sound like me? We talked about this during the prayer series. Do I sound like, do you sound like you when you talk to God? Is he, is he familiar? Or, or do you just have the appearance? Are you, are, you, are you all leaves? But not the real fruit of actually knowing him, being with him. In 2 Timothy 3, it's this fascinating passage that Paul's talking to his disciple Timothy, and he says, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be times that of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Get ready for a list here. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, which is an amazing word, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And listen to verse 5 having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Looking like godliness, but not being infused with what makes it powerful, what makes it godly. As Mark Sayers says, we want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. We want the goods of the good life without being under the dominion of the only one who can bring it about for us and to us. But it, but it won't work. It doesn't work. And it's amazing, as Jesus says so himself, he says in, in John 15, phenomenal passage, just a few days from this scene we're seeing right now, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and, and he says this. He says, it won't work unless you're connected to me. John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. Listen, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, this is the warning. This is basically the warning of the curse to the tree. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned because there's nothing left there. In verse 7, which is an echo of what we'll see in verse 25, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. What does it mean to have the substance, to not, to not be leafy without bearing fruit, without actually, what does it look like? What does it mean? Jesus says, you have to be connected to me. You have to abide, be at rest in me. Find your home in me. What does it look like to be the substance and not the appearance? God gives two, Jesus gives two examples to his, to his disciples. He said there's two ways in which you can experience, you can manifest, you can show the fruit, the real thing as you abide in me. And that's become the kind of person who manifests the, the, the faith-filled reality of your heart by praying in faith to God, believing that what you ask of him, you will receive. Believing that as you come to God, he will give you according to his perfect will. So are you the kind of person that will go to God? Are you able to take your faith to him and say, Lord, I, here is where I am. Here is what I long for. Here is what is needed. Your will be done in me. I'm, I'm abiding in you. Now, I'm asking Will you do this? It seems like this is what you long for. A life manifesting a faith-filled, expectant prayer towards God, believing that he hears us and that he's gracious towards us and generous towards us and powerful through us. But that's towards God. And then he says, but by the way, when you stand praying, the way in which fruitfulness is going to manifest itself through you is by being the kind of people who when you're praying you forgive. So the faithful prayer towards God, and then there's a faithful, humble forgiving towards others. You know, I think that's one of the probably the greatest marks of what it means to be a Christian is someone who can and will forgive, come what may. Come what may. It's true fruit, the manifestation of the life of God in us. Well, loved ones, the good, the good life that Jesus offers is one where we allow him to come in and to purify, to upend our hearts, our hearts' corruptions, and overturn all the systems of self-salvation, of self-preservation, of self-actualization, where we allow him to put to death all the way down to the root what is false in us that which has the appearance of something but doesn't have its substance. The good life that Jesus has saved us for is a life of real fruitfulness. Those who abide in me, they, they bear fruit, Jesus says. That's good news. In him, you bear fruit. And therefore, we have expectant prayer and healing and flourishing relationships. And as that continues to manifest itself, manifest itself more and more in our lives, 
people notice. They say, you're living a life that's different. You must belong to someone different. We belong to the king. Loved ones, on the uh, less than a week from Jesus' triumphal entry, from, from him cleansing the temple, from him cursing this tree, Jesus will be taken out of Jerusalem, this time not on a donkey, this time he'll be carrying a cross that's strapped to his back. And he'll be taken out, and he won't be surrounded this time by cries of, Hosanna, save me. I'll say, save yourself. Curses, pummeled jeers of crucify him. And here's the thing. As Jesus hung on the cross, which is, which is the ultimate cursed tree, right? A sign of the king of the Jews hanging above his head, which was true. As he shed his blood and as he breathed his last, he did what 255,000 lambs, 255 million lambs could never do. He, he opened a permanent pathway into the Holy of Holies. He, he made a permanent avenue for all of those who would trust in him to be able to walk into the presence of God. As he breathed his last and as the, the curtain was turn, torn from top to bottom, the veil that separated man from God he invited all those, all those that we just read about, those who are lovers of self, lovers of money, the proud, the arrogant, the abusive, the disobedient to parents, all those people, the us, you and me, the people that are struggling to actually not be pretending in their faith. He invites us to come to him, to, to repent, to drop to our knees. That by faith in him, he may grant us access to the presence of of God forever. This meal, loved ones, is um, a meal that invites us into real relationship with God as he really is in Jesus Christ. Not as we pretend him to me. And it's an invitation to come and to receive his life and his death for you. It's also an invitation by Jesus to say, will you let me walk into the middle of your life and flip the tables that you have secured to the ground? Will you allow me to enter and to become the king of kings in your place? Will you give yourself to me? And so it's our invitation by Jesus to come forward and to receive these elements and to declare, I belong to you above all else. And so as you come and as you receive the body of Christ broken for you and his blood shed for you, receive the grace that comes with it, which invites you to give yourself away to him. And then beyond that, to give yourself away to all the people that God's given to you, that we'd be a forgiving people, that we would be a bold, expectant, prayerful people, and therefore bear much fruit, fruit that remains. Let's pray. Father, thank you that... Um, that because of Christ, we belong to you. You tell us that because of what you've done, we have unfettered access to you now, and so we want to avail ourselves of this amazing privilege that you've torn the veil, and there is nothing that separates us from you. Your love for us, your desire for us, and so we want to come and we want to receive all of you and then we want to live out 
a fruitful, alive, holy, purified life. So would you purify us? Would you make us new? Would you make us people who pray expectantly and forgive graciously and therefore be salt and light? We pray this to the praise of Christ, our Savior, to the glory of God the Father in his name. Amen. Well, if you belong to Christ, this is your meal, your opportunity to come and receive grace. So come, receive the body and blood of Christ for you.